So if we just mark the time and date, it's the 5th of yeah. October 2012. Yes. It's half past 11. And this yeah. is a conversation between, between ourselves and yeah. Paddy Down and Eric Griffiths. That's it. Yeah. And um, we've met today, Anne, to really just discuss your life, really, and for you to, to tell me about the things that you've experienced. And we started, we'd already started a little bit this morning, but we touched on your grandparents, who I know are, are really quite noted people, aren't they? In, uh, uh, historically. Yes. Um, uh, my uh, paternal grandparents, my grandfather was uh, Professor Gilbert Murray, who was the Regis Professor of Classics at Oxford, and my grandmother was the eldest son, a daughter, <laughs> of the ninth Earl of Carlisle. But she left all that. She was very much devoted to Oxford. Mm -hmm. And uh, I used to spend, my sister and I, my sister was three years young, but we always spent the whole of our Easter holidays at Yetzkin. And there was uh, always a stream of refugees. The whole of my family were very politically minded. And from my earliest age, it was uh, quite normal, the question of refugees coming. My grandparents built a little cottage in their garden for refugees, for example, I can't remember his name, but it was a very well-known uh, conductor of a Berlin orchestra who came over. And people like that could stay there while they found their feet and found another place to go to. So was this in the 30s? Yes. Yeah. And so uh, what, what... Everyone in my family was very, well, very politically at my... Father, in fact, left my mother for someone else when I was four. But he wrote me letters, in capital letters, and with maps. He went to Spain as correspondent uh, and told me everything that was going on in the Spanish Civil War with his maps and so on. Mm -hmm. And he died there not because he was shot, but because he got pneumonia. And uh, he had no MD in his place. Our family all have very bad lungs. And uh, there is a very moving letter he wrote to his parents. He, he was put on a hospital ship and uh, he said, they said the crisis will come tonight, so tomorrow you'll go to letter. So that was him. And my cousin, people like Philip Torrent, we all went out. It was, we just were. Um, very anti-fascist mm -hmm. Did that include your grandparents? Were they, they, that oh. was, it was their home, wasn't it? That yes. They, uh, he uh, helped found, after the First War, he helped found the League of Nations Union. Mm -hmm. And he was very active. Um, the United Nations, of course, was after the war, but through that time he was very active in Geneva. My grandmother was a Quaker and such a wonderful woman. Uh, we had great trouble during the war, for example, to stop her giving away her overcoat to refugees. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I grew up very much involved and in knowing about foreign affairs. So you were in Paris as, for three uh, months, yes. Three months. And, uh, and therefore I've never had any difficulty with languages. Uh, Did you speak French before you went? No, not really, because no. you know how they teach in England then. Mm -hmm. How they had ruled about it. 
And so how was your French by the time three months was up? You, you come uh, well, I, I think I have very luckily a good ear. Mm -hmm. And I have found wherever I've gone, I can learn the language. And the most important thing is to get pronunciation right. I'm very lucky. I have two things. I have a good memory and I have a good ear. And so, I mean, when I'm in China, sounds like this can do it. But when I'm in China, I never need an interpreter. So I, I could go wherever I am. And I could put on a Peking accent. And I could do Jamar. Ah, Nisha Peking to Jamar. Sha. And you'd be amazed what a difference it makes. I, I wouldn't be amazed at all. It's wonderful <coughs> to, to have language when you're abroad. It is very wonderful. It makes mm. a whole difference. Mm. And it means you can understand the way of thinking, which is to me the most important thing. Mm -hmm. How it is that the language evolved. Oh, there was something I read I wanted to say to you. Yes. No, it was you who told me to listen to the programme about China. Oh, yes. It was yeah. great fun. Oh, good. But something they said, which was um, so true, China is a civilization, not a nation. Mm. Now, that is completely true. It's one who really knows quite a lot about China. Mm -hmm. That's what it is. I it's a, it, it's, it's so a civilization. Large, isn't it? It's so large. I, have, I thought about going to measure it against other countries, but you never, a Chinese doesn't talk about uh, the boundaries, all those things, there are 47 minority languages. Mm. Couldn't matter less. They're, but it's a civilization because what holds them together is the writing. So it's stone inscriptions, mm. this sort of thing. Mm. And you'd never hear a Chinese say to another from a Bandar, oh, you're not Chinese. You're not behaving in a Chinese way. Their philosophy encompasses the universe. Mm. Uh, what was daily life like for you? Obviously, Janus was busy. Oh, that was terribly funny. That's really funny because the children. Did you ask that question because I'd given you a hint about it or not? No, I just. Oh, think, I see. You know, well, it was terribly funny because the children thought, God, what's one going to do? She'd have lots of servants and, and there won't be lots of visitors because it's the. Cultural revolution, you know, what she has to do. And they gave me a patchwork quilt set. Oh, <laughs> it was so sweet and lovely of them. Yeah, yeah. However, what she did <laughs> was, as if we wanted to learn the language, so uh, they uh, talked to the people in the personnel department and they said, uh, well, Unfortunately, we don't have any English-speaking teachers, which was natural, it was the cultural revolution. So I said, well, that's all right, but I have also... This shows very much the Chinese way of thinking what happened. I am... I, I can speak uh, Spanish and French. Uh, no, French and Spanish, I think, in that order. Uh, I didn't mention Greek, honestly. <laughs> and, uh, so they then ran up and said, well, we do have, we have no English speakers, but we do have one who speaks Spanish. And I said, well, that's very good, but I have in fact only spoken Spanish for one year, whereas I'm completely at home in French. So they found a French speaker and she came, and uh, we talked to him, and she said, um, uh, so 
uh, you want to learn Chinese? And I said, yes, and because I think it's uh, obviously a difficult language, I th uh, it would really be best. Oh, she said, I'll come every Wednesday. And I said, you always have to say yes. She said, and I said, yes, that's wonderful. But I think Chinese is a difficult language and I'd really hoped I could have someone every day. And she said, thought of it, and then she said, all right, every day except Wednesday. She'd obviously got another person she was going to teach. And then she said, what time of day would you like me to come? And uh, I said, well, you know, I think my brain works better in the morning. And she said, seven o'clock? I thought of the breakfast that Yanks and I had on our little tray, and I said, yes, that's perfect. And just on the way out, she turned and said, maybe nine o'clock more suitable. <laughs> you see, you just say yes and you smile. And then they know that you're, if you say yes to the difficulties, then they know you mean you really do want to know. Yes. Yes. Yeah. You see, that's how they were. She was just seeing if I really wanted to know. Yeah. And I did. What was her name? I have no idea. Mm -hmm. okay. Remember, it's a long time ago. And there are not very many surnames in China. There are something like a hundred. Yes, not more. Liu, Wang, Chan. Not very many. Anyway, that was absolutely wonderful. She came every morning except Wednesday. And I sat down and started learning Chinese. And you have to learn, there's no grammar, but you have to learn, you need 3,000 characters in order to read. I was learning um, Mandarin, the simplified modern Chinese, which is called Kutunha, that means the normal language, uh, with simplified characters which were introduced uh, already in 49, so that the ordinary person could learn to write. The characters can be incredibly complicated and you, you must learn the character because, uh, have, you, have I said this before? I don't know. No, well, no. you see, there are four tones in Chinese. Um, da, 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 da. <laughs> and you've got to get the tones right because each the, the the same word like wu could be quite different things. And Yanis used to say I sounded like a duck. Two ducks talking when I was practicing these. Anyway, I got the hang of those. But then, after that, uh, a word like wu can mean different things. So you've got to learn calligraphy. And you see, if you said to me, wu ma, that could mean five horses, but it could mean dancing horses. So I'd say, Ni Yashua Negongu, Hoja Negongu, and I'd draw it in my hand. And you would draw back to me which Wu you meant, and we would understand each other. <laughs> so you, you, you really got to be quite hard at it, yes. learning Chinese. Yes, I can <laughs> you, uh, You've got to learn, and, but Think what they've got. They have a pictorial script which has been there for 2000 BC. There are wonderful cliffs with um, 
sayings and slogans and things cut on the clips uh, with the people who did it with an eye to the calligraphy, how it would be seen, how the light falls on it. So when you wonder what I did, well I used to study Chinese and by the end of the second year, we were about three and a half years, by the end of the second year I had finished what could be done at home. They had a course and I, I got through all that mm -hmm. and so I had permission to go uh, to the um, Peking Foreign Languages Institute uh, to study there, which was that uh, opened two years after we got there and foreign students for the first time started to come since the Cultural Revolution. And I got permission and the wife of the Mexican ambassador got permission. But it had to be cleared with the protocol department uh, because it wasn't usual to have the wife of an ambassador working as a student. <laughs> and, uh, yes, I asked, yes, I asked very specially, please um, don't put me in the same class as the Danish students because it would be embarrassing for them. And uh, so I was put with the British and that has been the most wonderful benefit because uh, I was old enough to be their mother. Uh, but they were very sweet. It was pretty tough at the Institute. There was, in the winter, there was no heating. And it bitterly cold. I mean, much, much further than all this. Mm -hmm. So at 11 o'clock, you went out into a cement courtyard and all did this to keep warm. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's what we did. And it was hard work because um, the, the Institute was only from 10 to 4. Uh, I had the luxury, and the Mexican, we had the luxury, that we were driven to the Institute. The Institute was on the edge of Peking. So I'd be driven out early in the morning, and driver uh, Liu would fetch me and bring me back. But of course, that's when our life started, our work life. Mm -hmm. So it was pretty hard work, one way or another. And then, so if we're still in China, what happened was that uh, I had reached the level where I had done everything uh, that I could be taught at home and I was given permission, have we talked about this, to go to the Language Institute. You've mentioned that you were having lessons at home. I did. The lady was coming. That's day, right, wasn't yes, she? except Wednesdays. <laughs> and she spoke French. Uh -huh. Well, I got to the end of that and so then uh, I went to the personnel. The wife of the Mexican ambassador also spoke good Chinese by then, and so did I. And I went, and she had had permission. Her husband was an out-and-out communist. Uh, he, wrote, he was lovely. We were very good friends. And I remember him lying in a Mao suit on the floor, <laughs> saying, yes, you know, to this, that, and the other. And so I went to the protocol department and explained in Chinese that Chinese had reached such, such a level and I wondered if I could go to the International Institute for Foreign Students 
and the man said yes, he accepted that my Chinese was quite fluent. And so I was allowed to go to this institute. It was quite hard work. The, the, these were the first, it was the first year, it must have been 74, when the university was open and foreign students came. And there were three British students. Uh, they, they had a pretty hard life there. Um, but I became great friends with them. And uh, uh, later, it was absolutely like a miracle for me because when I was writing um, my book, I needed to look things up, went to the British Library, and who did I see? One of my fellow students, Francis Wood, who is the um, curator for Far Eastern books in the British Library, uh, Beth McKillop in the Victorian Albert, and Rose Carr, uh, uh, Beth is now the director of the QA, and Rose Carr is the best specialist on Chinese porcelain in England. We, you see, we did manual labour. The great slogan was participate in manual labour, and of course it was a complete facade. But anyway, our class and our teacher went out into the fields, and uh, they all had to dig. But the people in People's Commune, Chinese and no fools, they took one look at me and saw that I was old. And they said, you're obviously going to overdo it if you dig. <laughs> and they actually said that. <laughs> Not that you're going to find it difficult. You're one who who really throw her heart into it and overdo it. So I was given a lovely job, which was to strip the leaves off bamboos. Oh. I've got some lovely photographs of that. Yes, there I was, happily stripped. But we did work across the field now and again, taking up some, not digging. And I remember thinking what a feeling of community it gives you. It has a very strong effect on your relationship to other people. Because as you cross this long, yes, the um, one of the Chinese leaders had introduced the, the communes, separate plots, had all been abolished and cultiv all cultivation was done over an area of two hectares, which is a very long area, and everyone uh, worked together over this. Mm -hmm. And that way you find, as you went forward, this long line of people went forward, if someone was a bit behind, the ones next would help so that she could keep forward. You got a very strong appreciation of how people work together. Yes. So, so there I was at the institute and then, and then of course in the last two years we travelled a lot. We got, because it was the old question of trust mm -hmm. and the Chinese came to trust the owners completely. Uh, we were theoretically, you see, weren't allowed to go except to the Great Wall or the Moon Tombs without permission. But we got permission and uh, we used to just travel off we, and uh, when I went back to do research and I stayed with them, I, I used to get up very early in the morning um, and get uh, uh, the, uh, the personnel department arranged. They said to me, uh, if you can do it early enough and you will pay a taxi for the ambassador, 
um, we will see that the official driver drives you out to do your work in the tools. And when I got out there, then I used to ride around in the si side coach of a motorbike. <laughs> we driven around because sometimes I spent the night out there. Mm -hmm. And the Chinese are very good. You know, they, they could just see how it was. Had you sort of developed any ideas of writing whilst in China? No. So, but you must have developed... I didn't your, have time. But you, you liked the stones and, and the rocks and, and, and the... Uh, uh, um, no, the not particularly. Yeah, I liked... I no, not particularly. Um, I, we liked them in tombs because mm -hmm. it was a place we'd be in the country, in the countryside, mm -hmm. and we'd see birds, you see. Uh, but that was the reason. And, and it was Yanis's idea that I should make a complete record of the new tools, and that's what I did, and including the drainage. I was teased about the drainage. And so, so, so was this whilst you were there? Yes, while we were there. Right. I made the complete record of it. So why, why did he suggest that? I suppose because we went there and had picnics, and I, I don't know, he probably thought it would be fun for me. Um, the Australian ambassador said one day, to me, you're quite correct, I must have got an interest. Um, instead, I went to Xi'an. Oh, yes, the Australian ambassador said, Do you know that there's a wonderful imperial tomb near Xi'an? Uh, and if you want to go and see it, the thing to do is that there's a very famous well known people's commune nearby. So asked to go and visit the commune. <coughs> so I did that, and right at the end of our stay, uh, I, what I noticed, got to see him, and I saw the museum there. Yes, and I, I think I saw the terracotta army there. Yes, because I think it was discovered while we were there. I did all that. And then I asked to go and see this people's commune and I noticed in the fields uh, with the small little groups of houses and fields, so often there was a pair of lions or there was a pair of something else. And then it was a foggy day. Now, uh, how can I explain it? Well, let's say that this is the tomb and the avenue leading up is over a kilometre long. Uh, probably from the start down there, it's about two, but then you get to where the statues start, and you have over a hundred statues two metres high leading up. And the, you will, when you've come all this way up, you will still only be at the foot of an enormous tumulus. And it so happened that I came in, there were no tourists at all, I came in, so that's it, I came in halfway up this avenue, just a little, there was a little um, little lane, we'd, we'd let the car walk through, and it was foggy. And I, I mean, I'll never forget, it was completely extraordinary. There were these enormous figures standing there in the sun. So that got me interested. Yeah. Why I started writing books? Well, about your interest in, in Chinese history. Yes. And, uh, well, that was there. But what made me write books was being ill. 
Right. Um, I've often wondered whether there was any link between my grandfather and his... He used to show us the uh, something marbles, Elgin marbles and so on, Bruce Museum, and my love of Chinese statues, and I don't think there was. I can't find any link at all. It was something completely different. Uh, I've wondered why I so, so enjoyed the statue, but I did. But I wouldn't have... I wouldn't have known about it uh, had I not gone back time after time after time. Mm -hmm. Often, twi usually twice a year. And uh, that's what... And then I couldn't have done it if the Chinese had not um, liked Elmer so much. You see, trusted him, they did it here. And Denmark said, um, couldn't Anne live in Alexandria and you meet at weekends? And that's where Yanis said, uh, we married for life, not just for weekends. But he also said, he sent as a cable to the Foreign Office, Anne is like a bird with a broken wing. Where she cannot fly, I cannot live. And it was during that time that I started writing. Because Janus was a very wise man. He knew I'd made a record of everything in the Moon Tunes. And it was he who said, you know, why not make a really good record of them? And he said, we had a bedroom and then next to it was, I suppose, I don't know, another little room off it. And I used to sit there like this, struggling for breath. And he said, Anne, why don't you try writing something about the moon too? So that's why I started writing. And he was brilliant. He managed to get books for me. He managed to get me to court. Um, who was the first person who'd ever written in the West. He was a Dutchman about Chinese religious system. He'd written in the 1880s. And then, what I wanted to get was Victor Sigalin, which you couldn't buy anywhere. Um, so that came a bit later, but there, I started writing. So I would sit without any breath, but writing a bit. And uh, that was about it. I think, yes, that's probably, it was probably when I was there that I was seeking money to get my book. Published. You see, it was Yale. Well, um, have you written it then, or were you looking? I to must see? have written it, yes. Yeah. Um, and but then I, no, I, I wrote it really. You see, yes, while we were in Egypt, <coughs> because I had to write it, um, I couldn't move. <laughs> mm -hmm. And uh, and then I used to go to get grants, and I told you about going to the visit the head of the Sino-American Union. Well, I thought that's a place. Because we had no money, and literally, no, um, all my research trips were done with grants, which meant they had the expensive part of um, traveling is the, the night. And therefore I used to travel um, Janet, who's doing this, is amazed, I have to tell you, at how many, how much I got through in such a short time. 
but it was because it's the nights that were expensive, so I had to, sort of six in the morning to six in the night, and I had to raise money each time. And so I went to this institute, I thought, gosh, they must have a lot of money. Very grand, skyscraper, and I went up to the top floor. <coughs> and there was quite a large man behind a very large desk. And uh, I explained to him what my research was and asked him for a hundred dollars. And he looked at me and he said, you are a very nice woman, but you're very bad at asking for money, I'm not going to give it to you. And it was then I realised that if I'd asked for a thousand, he'd have given it to me. <laughs> it was right. You've got to pay higher. <laughs> yeah, yes, I, but I, ne I never thought of that. But at any rate, I used to have to always raise money from different people. And that's what made the trips very tiring and very short. And then there came this thing that they uh, were going to print my book on the Moon Tombs. And then I had to start proofreading and everything. And I explained that I couldn't, I could not deal with Chinese and Icelandic. Mm -hmm. So I never learned Icelandic. But I could skill Yahama, I could understand it. Because that I was, um, what's the word? Asked. Uh, what, what do you call it? Commissioned. That was, uh, I was commissioned, and that was all great fun actually. Um, Jim, Jamie Camplin was, what is the press? Is it, what's it called? Thompson Hudson. <laughs> Thompson Hudson, which are a very good publishers. And uh, I had never met him before. He was a, a very nice, interesting man. I was, they were doing this series my last book. I put everything I knew into that. So when was that? When, when did you complete uh, your... 2006, apparently. It's quite busy, isn't it? Yes, it's surprising, isn't it? Yes, Chinese sculpture, great tradition. That was the one which goes 100% against everything which all the professionals said. Yeah. <laughs> and which now is sort of being taken for granted. That's a wonderful thing. Ordinary people are beginning to, somehow it made a, it had an effect. So tell me, what, what what did you write that was different to everybody else? Explain oh, have you. I never told you that? Yeah, oh, but Eric, that's fundamental. Mm -hmm. That's why I asked the question. It's important. <laughs> oh dear, that is funny. Sorry. Well, uh, if you. Uh, read the um, works on Chinese sculpture, or sculpture in China, by any of the accepted uh, sinologues, uh, professors, they will say that they have a very strong feeling that a lot of things in China came from the West. Now they're quite right about horses. Horses came from across the Gobi Desert, that sort of thing. And their knowledge of Chinese sculpture is limited to what they found in, in temples. They visited temples, they were in cities, and it was Buddhist. Or in, in buildings, it is Buddhist because Buddhism was the religion. Now, uh, 
I had a different experience. And it is very curious that it was, I mean, this was 100% accepted. <clears throat> I was uh, in China. I hadn't, I'd never studied art. I, I'd never studied Chinese at a British university or um, Buddhism or anything at all. Um, and, and it all started with the Ming tombs because we used to go out there every, every weekend. We went out because there was a lovely reservoir we walked around bird watching and then we'd have a picnic lunch uh, in one of the tombs. And as I say, I took the photographs and Yanis said, um, Yanis always encouraged me, because he said, now, you know, why not make a complete record? And so we did, and I made a complete record, and I used to be teased about how's the drainage coming on, because I, everything, I took into account everything, the walls, the drains, everything you can pick up, any form of gargoyle, and so on, and photographed it all. I thought it was interesting, so then I started uh, going to the tombs, photographing them. Why I got so interested, I don't know, but it was, um, I found it absolutely fascinating. And still, you know, people didn't accept that that, that that existed. They didn't sort of know it existed. But because Yanis was so, uh, was such a real, true friend of the Western European Department, he would write to them, I would say where I wanted to go. And they would always help me. The tourist bureau, French, French bureau, all those people, couldn't stand me because, of course, I never went anywhere, anywhere near their carpet factories. <laughs> but the result was that I used to go, um, I would visit different places, areas in China, and I would. Uh, through the Archaeological Institute, know where tombs were. And then I would walk. And I would walk over the hills, walk through the countryside, to get a fine bit of statue, and then I would photograph it. And I never photographed it from... from I, I'm not artistic at all. I photographed it in the most accurate angular way, you see. Mm -hmm. And because of this, uh, people, the people in the Archaeological Institute used to help tell me where, and I could only go, I would go for three weeks maybe or something, and then come home and then again. And I sort of got the bit between my teeth. <laughs> and that's what I wanted to do. These statues, I mean, when mm. you were finding them, mm. were they all related to tombs? Or, yes. Right. No, they are tomb statuary. Right. And tombs are out in the open air. Mm -hmm. And they are placed on a tomb and nobody ever molests them mm -hmm. and nobody moves them. And some of my photographs, it's right in the middle of the courtyard of a factory. Yes. But they wouldn't think of moving them. And because of that, I came to understand the Chinese attitude towards sculpture. Uh, which is completely different, not completely, but very different from ours. And that's where I was lucky. I had the advantage over the scholars. The scholars looked at it as stature, like we do, Greek or Roman, 
If you think of Greco Roman statuary, we would, for example, the first thing we usually do with a statue is walk around it to see what it's like from outside. And then we would think, you know, which personality is it? That sort of thing. Now, the Chinese never walk, they don't bother to walk around a statue. A statue, any three dimensional figure, influences people in this world and in the spirit world. And when you look at it, you can see, you can receive the message it's giving. It tells you something. It tells you something, and it will have that effect. So you see, uh, that's what I was lucky. So what I was studying was something they just didn't know about. Didn't know it was there. How did you interpret that? That your understanding that was different to the, you know, the accepted sort of sinologists internationally. How did you interpret that into your writing? What did you put into it? That was, um... Well, I just read and said. Uh, I, I, I gave lectures on it. But I remember. I've just been reading the most wonderful book about Africa, Karin Blixen. Mm-hmm. It's called Out of Africa. And my Danish sister-in-law gave it to me um, when I came back from the Congo. And the first sentence is, I had a farm in Africa. Mm-hmm. I think of a more mm. mind-blowing. Mm. Well, my first sentence is, China is a land of sculpture. Mm. Full stop. Mm-hmm. I wasn't copying her, but <laughs> it's the same sort of thing. Impactable, isn't it? Uh, it's, that's what it is. It's sculpture, and that's, that's how they believe it, how they look at it. And the stuff that they were looking at was Buddhist, which is different. And the Chinese are not anti-Buddhist. They're, they have this very, their whole language and everything is coming towards. And like the Icelanders, the Icelanders could wor- worship in church and uh, bend down if there's a stone dedicated to Thor. And uh, in China, uh, you perfectly well, you could be, you could be um, well, very easily be, you were a Confucian during the week while you worked. But in the weekend, you were a Taoist, and their philosophies are completely opposite. And uh, so, for me, I don't know, somehow it made sense. This was their philosophy. This was it fitted in with the way they thought. And so in their history, what, 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 why has statutory become so important? How did it develop? It was always important. I've often wondered. We were talking about, oh, yeah. Because, you see, like four years I lived in Greece. I wasn't a bit interested in the sculpture, but what we enjoyed was the scenery and birds. And there, there, there it all was. Delphi, I thought, was very nice, and that was so bad. Um, so it must have been something quite different. Well, perhaps it was, you know, you were learning the language, weren't you? And, you know, I mean, you were learning the society. Not, if you learn a yes. language, you must learn about the people, I guess, to some degree. For, particularly when you're no, not when you're, when you're learning Chinese. You just sit down and learn 50 words a day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, but you were actually living there, weren't you? So yes, you were part so of the society. But I can't think of the sort of things I remember learning from that was their philosophy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the 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 going towards yes and uh, yes for, well, I think did I talk to you about the cook yes 
Yes, you see those sort of things. Yeah, you get nails in the bag. Uh, uh, yes, and and how you, how you behave, and how <laughs> how I stayed stayed it out. So I think I learnt. Yes, I learnt the philosophy. Being, I suppose, yes, just living there, and Yanis and I somehow assimilated it. But I, what is true is I couldn't possibly have done any of my research without that. Mm-hmm. And perhaps that's why the uh, specialists, they didn't live in China. They visited. Yes. Yeah. And they visited for a reason, which was a seminar yeah. or a lecture. I yeah. think that's probably it. Yeah. Whereas we lived in China, and I walked over it as part of living there. I think that's it. But you know, I used to get postcards. Yes, for years ago. Now it's stopped because all my friends are dead. But we heard there was a, a woman taking photographs last June. Yeah, we think this must be you. <laughs> and of course, it always was. <laughs> and did I tell you the thing about Chiguai? No, well, that's really funny. But in Chinese, very odd to say to be odd or peculiar is qi guai. And one day, this is when Mark was still at the end, I think, and I went into the. They have a reading room for uh, Chinese and Japanese books, and I went in there, and there was a man I recognised. He was um, a Chinese archaeologist, and we sat and chatted. And I said to him, you know, they thought it was very chiquai. Oh, yes, he said, when I heard about you, I thought, very chiquai. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yes, well, you see, there was this funny thing, which isn't something I'd normally mention, but if they heard it was the wife of an ambassador walking, carrying her clothes and books (laughs) over the hills, Mm -hmm. that's even more chiquai, you see. (laughs) <laughs> so when you went on your research trips, mm. how long would you be there for? Usually three weeks. Once I think I spent six weeks, but uh, my, my health didn't last. It would be, I would see the sort of place where I was going and then see that they would help me in the Chinese, what I could see. But um, I have what they say about me is I have no breaks. Um, so I would work, 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 and when I came home, I was always ill. I was all right for the first two days, and then I'd lie down, and I would lie on a bed, like that, not even moving my hands. And one time, it lasted so long, it was six weeks. Now, do you see, I got a job. I, suppose I got a job being a lecturer at SOAS. Um, did we talk about that? No. Well, SOAS was running a what, what was School of Oriental and African Studies at London University. Um, and uh, the best place for study Oriental languages. And for some reason, they uh, included me in their list of lecturers. And the, the standard of lecturing had to be pretty high because uh, the students were postgraduates. That 
considerable sort of the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s. A lot of them were antique dealers or auctioneers. They were people who really knew about the things that they were studying but wanted to know more. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was asked to lecture. And I remember this thing like that. Um, I had occasionally given lectures before, but not much. And it's quite daunting to give lectures to a highly educated audience who are expecting the best. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I used to practice a lot. And in some miraculous way, it worked. Paid for a lecture in Chicago, then I would come. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't have just gone off and left Janus like that, but he would have thoroughly agreed with me going if there was a thing. So off I went to Chicago, and then, of course, it was absolutely wonderful. Uh, I was asked to Yen, I was asked to Harvard, I went to Washington, and uh, I was able to go all over the place, paid for, giving lectures. And, and the I, lectures were on China, I guess. Oh, oh, only on China. I couldn't yeah. lecture on anything else. Right. No, they were on Chinese yeah. sculpture. Yeah, right. And they were, <coughs> one of them was called Hidden Treasures. Mm -hmm. Did I talk about that? That was very funny because that made Yams laugh so much. <coughs> Hidden, Hidden Treasures, I started straight off in saying they are the hidden treasures are very large stone sculptures above ground all over China. And they are hidden because very few people, including Chinese, have been to look at them and treasures because they include some of the best Chinese sculpture there is. Mm -hmm. 